You are listening to One Bite at a Time with Hannah Sugars. Welcome to episode six. This is the penultimate episode for this term, so I will be uploading just one more episode before the Christmas break. From mid-December to early to mid-January, I will be up to my eyeballs in assignments. Not to mention, I will not have convenient access to the studio in central London from my home in Hertfordshire. So you can expect to hear from me in mid-January with some new content. Last week, I looked at the nature of stereotypical connotations of youth and femininity, and the notion of trauma, the idea that eating disorders must necessarily be rooted in trauma. I reconstructed the narrative around youth and femininity, proposing rather that anorexia can emerge in its entirety in the latter years of one's life, and that it by no means exclusively concerns the female species. I touched on the idea that statistical data doesn't account for those invisible cases, typically rendered silent by shame and stigma surrounding diagnosis, and in turn inhibiting the potential for full recovery, namely those classified as middle-aged to older, as well as men. Further to this, I explored trauma in more depth, first asserting that eating disorders don't have to be rooted in a trauma, but if and when the onset is rooted in trauma, this doesn't have to be traced back to one's childhood, and nor must trauma entail a singular event, but rather it perhaps refers to a generally unsettling period of time. This week, I will disentangle a number of ideas, namely those ideas about what one should and should not say to an anorexia nervosa sufferer. There are indeed a number of misconceptions about how to confront one with an eating disorder, and how best to offer one support. I will speak both from an objective point of view, on a more generic basis, with reference to statistical data, and draw on my personal experience, as ever, to supplement your understanding, to offer some broader, more relevant insight. Before I begin, I want to first establish that every individual with anorexia nervosa is different, and every case of anorexia nervosa is nuanced, and therefore individuals will have varying degrees of responses to these named triggers. What I mean to say is that some of these will be more intensely felt, whilst others, by contrast, might not impact an individual whatsoever. But generally speaking, it would be wise to adhere to the following guidelines to be on the safe side. Following from each, I will offer alternative responses that are perhaps more appropriate given the circumstances and are therefore more likely to be received well. But please note, this is not a formula for everyone. It doesn't necessarily follow that just because you have approached an individual with both the right intentions and using the right tools, that they will take kindly to your efforts. I am specifically referring to those individuals who might not yet have come to terms with their illness, are otherwise in denial. To encourage an individual who doesn't want to recover to seek help is a losing battle, and the blame will fall to you, as the friend or family member with their best interest at heart. Please don't take this to be a reflection of your failure, and nor of the relationship that you might have with the individual. The sufferer knows, deep down, that you come from a good place, and that your intentions are sincere, but they are too sick to engage with what you are saying, let alone express their gratitude and their thanks for your efforts. They lack the capacity, because they are in too deep. But they are not a hopeless case. Most individuals want to feel as their recovery was their own choice. They don't want you to spell it out for them. They merely need prompting. So plant the seed. Allow that seed to provide the anchor for its plant, and hope that your seed will sprout. And once sprouted, you may tend to your seed with more care. In other words, only once the individual has come to terms with their predicament may you begin to play a more active role in their recovery. So I will begin with what I can only hope is an obvious one. Comments about one's physical appearance. These must be kept to a minimum or otherwise avoided altogether. Naturally, comments are necessary sometimes. The therapist's guide to comments about appearance is a good measure of when and when not to comment. The five-second rule. If the individual can change this fact of their appearance in five seconds or less, it might be worthwhile commenting. 
For example, if they have something in their hair or in their teeth. And if we're being realistic, there are some comments that might well be pleasing to hear. For example, saying that someone looks beautiful or handsome, and where appropriate, perhaps even going further to state that this may be attributed to their hairstyle or clothing, but where possible, leaving it at that. An adjective. Be mindful when commenting on things that one didn't choose, and where possible, refer to choices such as hairstyle or clothing, and be mindful that some adjectives are gendered. If, and only if, these factors have been taken into consideration, may comments about one's appearance be welcomed by an individual. This is a fail-safe rule for life and may be applicable to all human beings alike, not merely sufferers of anorexia nervosa who might struggle more so with body image. It is my fervent belief that comments about shape and size should be avoided altogether when talking to somebody with an eating disorder, as a rule. And this doesn't just have to apply to individuals that you know have eating disorders. For one, you don't know who you are talking to. Eating disorders, as I discussed in my very first episode, are not always manifested physically. And in fact, they are very likely to be invisible. And so I would argue that we should be mindful when talking about the shape and size of anyone. We are all human. We all have insecurities, whether we are conscious of these or not. And whether they dominate our conscious processes or not, they are an unavoidable part of our psychological makeup. Perhaps comments might serve to trigger those pre-existing paranoias one might have, or alternatively to create entirely new paranoias about our physical appearance. We may all misinterpret and read into the meaning of these comments. Nobody is immune. Words hold power. You might ask, what if I were to steer clear of those comments about size and shape in favour of words such as healthy and unhealthy? What if I were to tell an individual manifesting physical symptoms that they don't look healthy with the hope of instilling in them some sense of rationality, some incentive to restore them back to health? What if I were to tell somebody embarking on a weight restoration recovery journey that they are beginning to look increasingly healthy, acknowledging and validating their efforts, encouraging them to continue to persevere? And my answer would be no. These comments may be manipulated by the eating disorder. An eating disorder might hear something entirely different. Namely, healthy might translate to fat, whilst unhealthy might be interpreted as a testament to the validity of the eating disorder, where unhealthy translates to thin, or at the very least indicates that there has been some change in the state of one's appearance, and therefore only really serves as more ammunition for the eating disorder. This indicates that the controlled efforts to manipulate the body have been successful, is it really so difficult to refrain from saying anything at all? Can we please treat individuals suffering with eating disorders as human beings, with identities distinct from their appearances? Anorexia is often rooted in dissatisfaction with the body, or is otherwise characterised by a fixation with controlling the size and shape of one's body. These thoughts are all-consuming for sufferers. They are acutely aware of their predicament. Awareness isn't the problem. They don't require your input. They don't need reminding. It isn't a question of awareness, but of fear. It is fear that is holding them back, not ignorance. Even if the eating disorder might masquerade it as ignorance, lack of progress indicates fear. If you insist on saying something, perhaps stick to emotive adjectives. Sad, happy. I don't like to see you looking so sad, or it's lovely to see you looking so happy again. But then again, is one's exterior ever really a reliable indicator of their internal state of well-being? Be mindful of who you are talking to. If you know the individual very well and have played a part in their recovery journey and therefore know that they are feeling a certain way, you wouldn't be putting words into their mouth. And so it might be worthwhile using emotive terms to approach them, to show them some empathy, some compassion and some understanding. See how making comments about appearance is a grey area. The bottom line is, where possible, avoid them. Especially if you have not played a part in the recovery journey of the individual. 
It is frankly none of your business. Your comments will be misinterpreted and might well have fatal implications. And I don't believe that commenting on someone's size is really necessary under any circumstances, especially not someone who is suffering or has suffered with an eating disorder. And when speaking to people in general, even when your intention is to be complimentary, for example, with reference to the size of one's waist, praising them as slight or narrow, this is unhelpful. This merely reinforces those traditional and socially constructed ideals around beauty. Beauty as synonymous with thinness. And what's more, comments about appearance only serve to perpetuate a legacy in which individuals are valued only in virtue of their physicality, that we are but the sum of our aesthetic parts. Perhaps size in the context of muscle growth might prove an exception, but then again, as I mentioned last episode, a fixation with one's aesthetic in any capacity is a sign of disordered thinking patterns. My advice to you is to be mindful as to whether this was an intended result or not. So, if the intention was to gain muscle and an individual has been successful, it might be worthwhile commenting. But do consider the context, the individual, and what you might know of their behavioural tendencies. These comments are particularly unhelpful for individuals with obsessive tendencies, many of whom happen to be religious gym-goers. If you're unsure, leave it out. Say nothing. Better safe than sorry. Be mindful that your comments can incentivize disordered thinking around the body. And most importantly, we are human beings with value beyond what meets the eye. Beneath the surface level, we are souls. We are infinitely complex beings with so much more to offer, beyond our capacity to attract others, as solely based on our physical appearance. Generally speaking, if you wish to offer someone support, or if you are concerned about somebody's health on the basis of their physical appearance, two things to remember. One, be sure to judge the situation appropriately. If you are not a close friend, connection, or family member, I would advise that you stay out of it. Two, physical appearance isn't a reliable measure of one's state of well-being. Drawing on the ideas of my first episode, somebody who might literally or medically be classified as underweight might well be in good health. Perhaps they are biologically inclined this way. And by the same token, just because somebody appears to be of a healthy weight, or exceeding that of, it does not mean to suggest that they are not suffering with an eating disorder. Eating disorders are characterised by those unconventional thinking and eating patterns. These control mechanisms don't always manifest physically. The best thing you can do is tell somebody that you are there for them, that you would be happy to offer a listening ear, and that you are silently cheering them on. Leave it open for the sufferer to confront you. Don't speak out of turn. You cannot unsay what has been said. You cannot erase the damage. Another thing to avoid at all costs. Comments about how much or little one is eating, or what or how they are eating. A sufferer doesn't require you to tell them that they are under-eating. Did you think that was the answer? That you reminding them of what they are acutely aware of? The very facts that are consuming them for minutes upon hours upon days, that dominate their consciousness at the expense of the capacity to think and feel, is going to solve the problem. You are not going to fix a sufferer by telling them what they already know. And nor does an individual wish to be praised when they do eat what you perhaps deem to be adequate amounts of food. As with the above example about the size and shape of one's body, these comments will inevitably be misconstrued, taken out of context, and blown wildly out of proportion by the eating disorder. An individual is likely to hear that they are eating too much. They will not take kindly to being told that they are eating enough. Did they ask for your approval and your validation? Was your judgement necessary? Helpful? What's more, one snack or meal is not a reliable indication of one's state of health, nor is a day or two. What you are seeing may be a snippet, a mere glimpse of the bigger picture. What an individual does in their own time is what counts. 
What an individual does when they aren't under the nose of those who they know full well will be looking for signs of disordered behaviours is what counts. It is overall habits that count. The eating disorder is likely to manipulate the situation. For example, an individual might indeed eat in front of other people, and adequate amounts at that. How do you know that they haven't deprived themselves of food and engaged in a compulsive exercise regime in advance of this social interaction to justify eating on this occasion? And how do you know that they won't deprive themselves of food or engage in a compulsive exercise regime following this as a compensatory measure for eating on this occasion? How do you know that they aren't agonising over every mouthful? What do you really know? Nothing is the answer. Nothing at all. The eating disorder is more manipulative than many of you could begin to fathom. A sufferer doesn't want to be told that it doesn't look like enough, and nor do they wish to hear that it is enough, by your standards anyway, and nor do they want to be told that it looks nice. This makes one feel stupid. We know that you're trying to incentivize us to eat, and your comments feel like pity, and they certainly don't want to be criticised for what they do choose to eat. As mentioned in a number of my episodes, the sufferer is bound by an illusory law, a moral guide to eating, compelled to avoid certain foods. The restrictions imposed upon them by the eating disorder are such that they have a very limited range of foods to choose from. For one reason or another, we believe that we should not eat said foods. For a short while, I would only eat fresh fruit and vegetables, kidney beans, black beans and chickpeas, boiled eggs, tinned tuna and corn meat slices. My plate was piled high with unlikely combinations of fibre and protein. Please let the individual eat what little they do permit themselves to eat. Leave this part to trained professionals. And as for how we are eating, if the manners of the individual slip, it is through sheer fear. If the pace slows or quickens considerably, this can likely be attributed to the crippling fear of either getting to the end of the meal or by contrast the desire to get it over and done with. In any case, eating is an anxiety-inducing experience. Eating becomes a chore, something to be endured. And comments whilst an individual is eating should be avoided at all costs. These may be sufficient to deter the individual from eating altogether. The eating disorder can very easily justify giving up the game when another individual has crossed a boundary. The eating disorder will signal to the individual that it is okay to stop eating because they are feeling distressed, targeted, victimised, and the blame will fall to you. The eating disorder will look for excuses not to eat. Don't be that reason. Another must not. Please refrain from talking about your own relationship with food and exercise in the presence of somebody with an eating disorder. Rather, do your utmost to remain neutral around foods, to normalise eating. Especially do not talk about food and exercise quantitatively. And hopefully this goes without saying, we certainly do not wish to know how many steps you've taken or how many calories you've consumed or burned. And they don't want you to overcompensate by exaggerating the niceness of food. Again, much like the example provided above about commenting on the aesthetic of one's food, this makes one feel stupid, and this only feels like pity. Especially for those who are no longer children, this feels belittling. We don't want to know that you also don't eat this particular food, and that you also exercise sometimes to alleviate feelings of guilt and shame, and that you understand, because you are also scared of said consequence. Please don't try and empathise. Please don't attempt to relate to the individual. This invites comparisons and has the potential to be very toxic. Toxic perfectionism, characteristic of many individuals with eating disorders, is to the extent that this might be perceived as a threat to their status, and in turn one might wish to compete with your efforts. Furthermore, if you are trying to normalise their behaviour, you are first making the individual feel like a special case. They aren't stupid. They know that you're trying to make them feel normal, and that you don't really think their behaviour is normal at all. 
and this in turn only makes them feel more abnormal. And you are second, inadvertently justifying the behaviour, saying, without actually saying, that it is okay to engage in these disordered behavioural patterns. And on the topic of normal, certainly don't compare their food and exercise habits to those of a normal person. This makes an individual feel peculiar, and this is isolating. Don't talk about your weight. We don't want to know how much you weigh. We don't want you to speak factually or neutrally about your weight, express dissatisfaction or otherwise. Again, this invites comparison. Generally speaking, numerical information is unwelcome. And don't dismiss the illness as a mere case of attention-seeking or a vanity project. This only serves to evidence your ignorance. Anorexia nervosa is a complex mental illness. Lastly, if this wasn't already implicit in everything I have discussed so far, refrain from asking invasive questions. Open the space for the individual to share their personal experiences. Let them come to you. Let them offer you the information. Don't pry. Don't probe. Gently remind them that you are waiting if and when they do decide that they would like some support. Remember, the individual has suffered or is suffering a trauma. Be sensitive to this. This episode has been a somewhat brief summary of the shoulds and should nots, the appropriate and helpful versus inappropriate and unhelpful when supporting an individual with anorexia nervosa or eating disorders in general. I will reiterate, the appropriate response depends largely on the individual and the specific case. Everyone is different. This isn't a formula or a one-size-fits-all approach. This is a rough guide. And here the saying, if in doubt, leave it out, could not be more appropriate. Trust your gut. If there is a chance it could be triggering, save it. The eating disorder has a funny way of latching onto things and taking them out of context, using them to justify continual practice of toxic compulsions. A good intention or a compliment might have connotations. And even when they don't, when you might think there is no way that your comment can be misinterpreted, an eating disorder can and will translate this into something entirely distinct from its initial intended meaning. Be tactful. I hope this episode has been eye-opening and that you have learned something. And if you take nothing else from this episode, remember that an individual just wants to know that you are there and supporting them, even from afar, at a distance. Respect their space and their boundaries, whilst gently reminding them that you aren't going anywhere, so they are safe in the knowledge that their close family and friends are on standby for if and when they do decide to seek out help. And it isn't your tragedy. You can only pray that they do. This has been One Bite at a Time with Hannah Sugars. Thank you for coming on this journey with me.